I now live in Rochester in Kent and just occasionally when there is a special proclamation to be made uh, outside of the cathedral there stands a man dressed in some very fancy regalia looking very smart and very official and authoritative especially with the tone of voice at which he shouts out Hear ye! Hear ye! And I won't proceed anymore. <laughs> it's the town crier. What an effective way of getting attention pre-Twitter, the internet and probably printing presses or everything else. If there was something to be said that everybody needed to hear, then it needed someone with a loud voice to act on behalf of the official body to go out and proclaim it. In a sense, little has changed with the passing of the centuries. We might use different methods, but the same principle applies. If the king or queen of a country have something to proclaim, they send their officials out so that to make sure that everybody at least hears. The King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave a solemn charge to his disciples. And the Apostle Paul, as we know him, was very mindful that he had a personal responsibility, not only to listen to the King of Kings, but to obey his voice. And if ever there was one who was committed to spreading the gospel and engaging in missionary, church planting, church building enterprise, it was surely the Apostle Paul. But Paul was conscious that he had a limited lifespan. And it's a good thing to remind ourselves of. We're not here forever. The day will come when we will die when we will have to give an account to God. And I'm sure for the apostle it would have been, well done, good and faithful servant. I wonder if that would be true of you. Paul in his enthusiasm not only planted churches, but he also taught the next generation how to serve as a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist a carer of souls. He had a spiritual son called Timothy and there was such a close bond between them. And I'm sure Timothy would have wanted to hang, as it were, on, uh, on every word that the Apostle Paul would have said. And here he's got a letter in our New Testament addressed to him personally from his spiritual father. And what a blessing it is that uh, God, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, instructed and guided and helped the Apostle Paul to pen this first letter of Timothy along with another one we call Second Timothy and yet another one called Titus which formed the pastoral letters in our New Testament. What a blessing. Clear instruction to the next generation. And as a little phrase... Uh, that comes up several times uh, in Paul's writing 
to Timothy. Uh, and it's this. He says, this is a faithful saying. It doesn't mean to say that all the others were unfaithful. Of course not. But here is something that is particularly faithful. And therefore the, the emphasis is put on it. it there's such great importance behind these simple little statements. Uh, and we have read what in effect was the third faithful saying that the Apostle Paul had for Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 9 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the saviour of all men especially those who believe. And then the command to Timothy these things command and teach. This is a faithful saying. And then as it were there is the summary of a public proclamation. We trust in the living God. And that's what the Apostle Paul wanted not only his spiritual son Timothy to hear, but this is what God wanted every succeeding generation to hear. It's such an important public proclamation. We trust in the living God. So let's give our thoughts to this as we think about the public proclamation that must be made in every generation by God's people because there are needy people all around us in our families, in our streets, in our workplaces throughout the country, throughout the world who need to hear this message from our lips who do we trust in? The living God and they need to hear that I've got six things that I want to say about this statement. Don't worry, I won't be 30 minutes on each point. All right. The first is this. It is a collective statement. Notice what the Apostle says as he writes to Timothy. We. We. All of us. That is, all of us who are believers. There are times, of course, and I've got a relative who con is constantly doing this. They say we, when they're in actual fact, they mean I. Oh, we went to the shops. How did we go to the shops? You're one person. You're living on your own. How did you do that? It's sometimes referred to as the royal we. Because traditionally, this is the way kings and queens actually spoke. We did this. We will do that. But um, Mark Twain had a different idea. Uh, he suggested, uh, because so often editors and writers use what they call the royal we, Mark Twain once said, only kings, presidents, editors and people with tapeworms have the right to use the official editorial we. So it might be a diagnostic symptom for a tapeworm, but otherwise uh, 
bear in mind, we is a collective word. When the Apostle Paul uses the word here and it's translated into our English language, it's the correct use of the word. He's talking about a collection of people. He's talking about himself. He's talking about Timothy, who he's writing to. He's talking about everybody who's reading the word of God, who loves Jesus Christ and knows him as their Lord and Saviour. It's an emphatic statement by the Apostle. It's not, he's not raising the matter for something for discussion. Oh, can we talk about this and uh, have a vote, see who's in the majority? Do we all say uh, that our hope is in the living God? No, it's not something for discussion. And neither is it for something for whispering silent, quietly to your neighbour or even keeping quiet about. It's something to be shared with others. We are not to be embarrassed. We're not to hide in a corner. We should be ready and be able to say clearly and politely but boldly, we trust in the living God. It's a faithful saying. Well, we've got a public proclamation to make. Every true Christian can say of themselves, together with their fellow believers, we trust in the living God. It's a wonderful statement. I'm very mindful that we have, in a sense, words that have been put into our mouth with this expression but hopefully it's true of us if we really do love the Lord. It's also easy for people to adopt statements and others use them without thinking about the importance and the significance of them. But will you ponder please the Apostle's words we trust in the living God. We! Do you? Is it important to you to tell others about this fact? I do hope so. Well, it's a collective statement. But then, may I suggest also uh, that it is a challenging statement. You see, how the Apostle introduces it, he says in verse 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance, and then he's got a further sort of little introduction in verse 10. For to this end we both labour and suffer reproach. So brace yourself for reproach when you dare to tell people we as a local church assembling in these premises we trust in the living God. We don't believe in idolatry. We don't believe there are many a multitude of different ways to come to God. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He's the living saviour. He's the living God. And when you make that statement, be aware of this, there will be people that you talk to who will be challenged and they will challenge you. The very moment you put your trust in the living God, instead of naively putting your trust in your religious activities or anything else that you're putting your confidence in, you are going to annoy Satan. And he will become your bitter enemy 
and you are likely to suffer reproach. When you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not get an insurance policy against persecution, reproach or difficulty or misunderstanding when you tell other people, well, I trust in the living God, not the lottery or anything else. But then brace yourself. There will be trials. Not very good advertisement for Christianity, is it? It's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. You might have a thorn in the flesh. There will be trials, there will be difficulties, there will be mockery, there will be hardships, there will be suffering, there will be tribulation, there will be persecution, there will be temptation, conflict, frustration and disappointments. How's that for a list? Please, take notice. If we dare to proclaim to others that we are trusting in the living God, then this is likely to happen. I challenge you, read any section of the New Testament and you will find the written testimony of men and women who were trusting in the living God. And what did it also involve? Suffering. Persecution. For Christ's sake. It was predicted by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. It was experienced by believers as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. It is advised about in the New Testament letters written by various people, Paul, Peter, John, Jude. It was confirmed by the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation as he wrote, as John wrote to the seven churches who were suffering for Christ's sake. So please bear in mind then, yes, it's a collective statement. Two, it's a challenging statement, challenging for us who have put our trust in the living God, but challenging to those whom we tell that personal testimony. But thirdly, be assured of this, it is a confident statement. We trust some translations have we hope now Miss one was putting the washing out the other day and said I oh I do hope it's not going to rain I do hope there'll be enough sunshine to dry it and I'm saying I do hope it will rain to water the garden so I can get some plants in <laughs> It's not that sort of hope. You see, when we hope in the living God, it means that we are putting our complete trust in him. There was a, an occasion when we moved to Rochester some time ago and we were negotiating for a fitted kitchen. And uh, at the time, we were attracted by an advertisement that offered a discount. I make no bones about it. It was a very good discount. So we were trying to uh, get the measurements all done. And um, someone, I had my measurements, but they didn't trust me. They said, no, we must send a representative to take these measurements for ourselves. 
And I was concerned whether in the limited time still available that I would get the discount or would I be waiting for them to come and do the measurements and then say, oh, sorry, you've missed the deadline for the discount. I was really hoping that they would come on time. And do you know what the salesman said to me? Just two words. Trust me. And I thought, well, I'm more inclined to trust in my God rather than a mere mortal because like me, he had sinned. Like me, he can tell a lie. Trust me. Well, you may not be able to trust the salesman, but I can assure you this. You can trust implicitly the Lord Jesus Christ who loved the church and gave himself for it. He died to give us new life. He died that we might be pardoned. We can trust him for everything. Every day of our lives we have to exercise trust in people and just occasionally we will be let down. I arrived in the car park this morning and I had to trust that my newly downloaded app was going to work so I don't get a fee in the car park. We have to put trust in people and things all the time. When you came into church, can I ask you, did you feel that chair and just check that it was strong enough for you to support your weight before you sat down on it? Or did you just sit down implicitly, knowing that you'd done it before and it was no reason to doubt? This is our attitude that we need towards God. It's a confidential statement. We trust. We are fully dependent upon. We are fully putting our hope, our faith, and our trust in the Lord. How sad it is to find that when it comes to Almighty God and His incredible power, His never-changing nature, his gracious, merciful attitude towards us. Uh, how sad it is that people are so slow and so reluctant to put their trust in him. Oh, how we need to look in faith and trust and make this to be a confident statement that we can apply ourselves to in the living God rather than any mere mortal. What sinful arrogance swells in the hearts of multitudes of people who wrongly dare to assume that they can go through life and even face death comparatively cheerfully without putting their trust in the living God. That is sinful arrogance. It really is. There was a man called Rodney Smith who adapted the name Gypsy Smith. He put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in November 1876. And he reaffirmed his commitment a few days later in a Methodist chapel. And an old man asked him if he had public trust in Jesus and nothing else. And Rodney Gypsy Smith had this reply. Oh, I love his statement. 
he said, I cannot trust myself, for I am nothing. I cannot trust what I have, for I have nothing. I cannot trust what I know, for I know nothing. (laughs) Humble, honest, sincere statement. Who's he trusting? The living God. What a lovely testimony. Perhaps you have trusted Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of glory, and he is your personal saviour. And perhaps you did it a long time ago. But may I respectfully ask you a question? Are you still trusting in the living God? Do you have unjustified doubts arising in your heart and mind? Is Jesus saying to you, my child, trust me? Lindsay A. Bennett in her hymn says, Trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing at all. Trust him. He's ever faithful. Trust him. His will is best. Trust him for the heart of Jesus is the only place of rest. We trust in the living God. My hope is fixed on God alone. We sung those words, didn't we? The God of sovereign grace, whose heart conceived a glorious plan of mercy for rebellious man, for Adam's fallen race. We trust in the living God. How wonderful it is. Yes, it's a collective, challenging, but confident statement. May I suggest also that it is a clear statement. We trust in the living God. We trust in the living God. How many words? Six. What's the longest word? How many letters? Six. Not complicated, not jargon, not abbreviations that you have to look up a a list on Google to see what the abbreviation means. Plain, simple, easy to understand statement. Yes, six words, the longest word of which in our English language is only six letters. So... Isn't it wonderful to read something that's not written in technical jargon and you need an interpreter to explain it to you? What a blessing. God takes pity on our simplicity. He really does. And when we come as Christians to share the gospel with others, please bear in mind they have not swallowed Burkhoff's systematic theology or they've not even read the Bible to know what the word justification means or propitiation or all these other things. We really have got to start with a simple diet, the milk of God's word, to feed people with. 
And if you just think about all the main teaching of the scripture, it is so clear and simple and plain. God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that puts the evolutionary theory in its rightful place for a start, doesn't it? Clear, simple statement. Not some long, drawn-out theory that's never been proved true. Have faith in God. Come unto me, Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Your sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. Wonderful. Repent and believe. The gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in three words. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin in true heartfelt sorrow and put all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. The living God. So that you can say with other believers here, we trust in the living God. What a blessing. What a privilege. But it's a contrasting statement. We trust in the living God. You mean to say there are other gods that we need to differentiate between one and another one? Yes. There are gods, and we would use a small g, and there is the living God, which we would use a capital G. Hence my reading from Psalm 115 where the psalmist talks about the gods of this world, people, idols. He speaks of a people who their idols are silver and gold, but it's only the work of man's hands. They were not created by God. They had nails. <laughs> Ask them to speak. Well, you'd have to be a ventriloquist to get them to talk, and then you can't make their jaw move. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, and they can't handle. They have feet, but they can't walk. And they can't even mutter with their throats. And the, the, the real challenge is that those who make them are like them. And not only that, Everyone who trusts in that sort of idol is foolish. Because we need to trust in the living God and be able to say, thank you Lord for Jesus Christ who is my Lord, my God, my Saviour, my Redeemer. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, he could say to them, you have turned, you've repented, you've turned away from the dead idols to God so that you might serve the living and the true God. Have you done that? What a contrast. When you turn to the living God, your life will be transformed. Up until now, it's like worshipping idols, the idolatry of your own thinking perhaps, that you are right and everyone else has got it wrong when they talk about the living God. Your life will become a contrast. But may I suggest sixthly and finally, 
that this is a convicting statement. We trust in the living God. And the challenge, by way of implication, is simply this. What of you, my friends? What of you? It's a challenging thought. Everybody around you might be saying, we trust in the living God. Yes, but it's an individual thing, isn't it? And therefore it is convicting and challenging. Listen to the exhortation and personal commitment of Joshua in the Old Testament as he sought to turn the people in his day and generation away and turn their hearts from dead, false gods and idols and turn to the living God. This is what he said. Choose for yourself this day who you will serve. Now believe me, you might not realise it, but you're serving a master. And there are two key masters. One is called the Saviour and the other is called Satan. God or the devil? The idols or the living God? Which is it going to be? Be mindful that you need to choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. And then Joshua goes on by way of personal testimony. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that really was going against the grain of public opinion in the t- at that time. And it might be a challenge for you to be able to say that. Can you say humbly and honestly and gratefully with the psalmist of old, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. Is that true of you? Psalm 42 verse 2. Can you say of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Apostle Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How will you use the time that is ahead of you if your life is spared? Will you turn, before it's too late, to the living God, love him and trust him, denying yourself and following a risen saviour? Or will you die, a spiritual idolater, rejecting the living God, but having to face his judgment on that final judgment day. Will you be able to spend the rest of your life in gratitude and with confidence so that you can join with other like-minded believers and say, we trust in the living God. Thus knowing the living triune, almighty God is your Gracious Saviour and Helper and Provider, you will enjoy his peace and his help. May it be said of each one of us, as Paul put it in his letter to the Thessalonians, you turned from, turned to God from idols. What for? To serve the living God. All may these things be true of us so that we can say unitedly, we trust in the living God.
I hope you're not ashamed to speak of the Saviour and I hope that you can sing our final hymn with gratitude and zeal. I am not ashamed to owe my Lord or to defend his cause. Maintain the honour of his word.